So, let's begin. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Now that's a very interesting story. All the people that were working for Main Man were unusual. We were loud, ugly Americans, basically. Hello and welcome. This is episode 12 in our series that explores the history of Main Man, the groundbreaking management rights company that reshaped the rock and roll landscape in the early 70s. So because I was the advanced man, I had to go find the gay bars, check out the clubs, and do the initial publicity and everything before the show arrived there. And I had plenty of time to do it because I'd fly in and the show would be chugging along in a bus or a train or whatever was on the ground. So sometimes I'd have like three days before they got there. Main Man was created by entrepreneur and impresario Tony DeFries, whose roster of talent included acts like Amanda Leah, Dana Gillespie, Mick Ralphs, David Bowie, Lou Reed, Mick Ronson, Iggy Pop, Mott the Hoople, and John Mellencamp. Ronson and I met very shortly after I started being managed by Main Man. I had gone to New York not knowing anything about the music business, and uh, Ronson kind of took me under his wing and just asked questions and helped me with my first record. As we continue to hear from people who lived and worked with David and Angie at Haddon Hall, another regular visitor to Flat 742 South End Road in Beckenham, South London in the 70s was photographer Mick Rock, whose illustrious career with David began with his first full session at Haddon Hall for a Rolling Stone piece that included an interview and photographs of David in the hall and in the garden. At home in his studio in New York City, Mick begins by talking about his impressions of David when he first began working with him. Let me tell you, I think I had already... I mean, I'm very happy to say it wasn't just David Bowie that put me... I mean, I had already taken what I now regard as the best pictures of Sid Barrett by far. But that was a slightly different thing, and Sid was a mate of mine through Cambridge. But when I look back, I mean, you're going to understand living it, I was a believer. I believed from the moment I saw him. Why did you believe me? I, I think... I love the music, and there was an intelligence about it. Not that Paul McCartney and John Lennon and Mick Jagger and all... Pete Townsend, very intelligent people. But it was an intelligence that I related to probably more strongly. And it wasn't because he was looking like a big girl. That was the byproduct of his sensibility. David Bowie, whatever it was, he synthesised the... And he knew... It's like Lady Gaga and Freddie Mercury. I mean, same, but they both talked about it. Listen to Ziggy Stardust, the album. David Bowie was not a superstar when he recorded Ziggy Stardust. But the Ziggy Stardust, and although he got sick of it in the end, and frankly, that image, was it as important as the music? It's such incredible music, it's hard to say, but it was incredibly important. But it was an organic process. This was not like... You know, maybe you're talking a few days or a week ahead. This was not like master plan. It was eyes down, deep focus, and keep on going. And all this incredible stuff happened, including Mott the Hoople and all the young dudes. David was filtered, and he... 
I mean, I've got to tell you, you mentioned something once to David, if it interested him, he remembered. But he synthesized a lot of different elements. Mark was working one neck of the woods, because he would, and David would do that too, you know, with the bowers and, you know, that kind of girlier end of it. But then David also did that alien thing. And the alien thing, no one's ever done it. I mean, Marilyn Manson started to get there, but then the silly bugger started putting on garter belts. Now, David Bowie never wore a garter belt. He never did. He did wear girls' high heels shoes at times, but, you know, platforms, and he would nick a belt, and he, he would sometimes wear... But they weren't like frilly dresses. So it was never, ever drag it was always informed Lindsay Kemp or who would do drag sometimes the mime choreographer with whom David worked and did the music for flowers and I think it was in 68 this is before I met David like four years before he taught David and, and I once I met him I learned more stuff so he was very aware David of living theater and kabuki and no theater and he had done that marcel marceau thing i mean there's footage of him out he was playing around with this stuff very early on it just synthesized at that moment and then it developed because the early pics i've got of him it's like the wild hairdo for those times and the outfit that freddie had made him and of course as times were as the thing whew, i saw him ride that you know the, the whole I mean, it was looking back, it's quite fascinating what he did. And there was really no money around. I mean, there really wasn't. He hadn't made any money, any more than Lou or Iggy or Mott the Hoople had. And you go, well, I suppose it was done on genius, you know. And, and he was right at the centre of it. Mark, he never talks a lot about it, but I think Mark was, from what I can make out through later reading, he was, had more of an attitude about David, especially when David started coming on and Mark was already, you know, she was Miss Glitter. She was Miss Glitter. And she will always be Miss Glitter. Uh, but glam was something with a lot more resonance, and it did include a bit of Hollywood, and it included summer New York. And it, it was a rich thing. And David, you know, your genius is a legitimate word in his case. And I, I mean, it was exhausting. It launched me that period of time, and I saw it all. But after that, I needed to get away from it because as sweet and charming as he was, you know, I knew that, you know, that was... Uh, he's a very nice man. Through your work with Main Man, you got to work with some great artists, including Lou Reed, and you photographed the cover for the legendary Transformer. What was your plan for that shoot originally? I was just trying to photograph him. I knew what he looked like, but they, he'd never had any strong pictures taken of him, like indelible ones. There's a lot of nice with the velvet under but you know he's, I mean, with his brilliance, did, did it matter how he looked? He said, well, it didn't hurt. Once I sent, got that image, it did seem to help a little teeny bit. I'm sure Walk On, it's such a brilliant album that, but who else was going to shoot it but me? Originally, I mean, David, Mick Ronson, Lou Reed, but it wasn't the original front cover. The back cover was conceptually going to be the front cover until I met David. I went with David. I don't think I'd met Lou before that night. He'd just come in. David, I was so excited. Lou Reed from the Velvet Underground, you know. You go, you big girl, Mick Rock. But anyway, I, I was really, you know, it's, I mean, I knew about Lou and Iggy and, and certain people. Nick Kent knew about Lou and Iggy, that's for sure. Uh, I mean, there's certain elements of like, you know, like loony hipsters in London did know 
But not that many people did. I mean, we were the few and I suppose we all loved it. But David was like that. He was a real fan. Look how he promoted them. I mean, Transform, of course, did Transform, Lose Life. Um, and, and like a perfect day, like the perfect love song. You go, how did Lou Reed write that? And you followed that one up with the cover of Iggy and the Stooges' Raw Power. I'll tell you one thing. I'll give you my strong take on it. They were certainly shot at the same location, which was King's Cross Cinema, where on Friday and Saturday nights they would have rock and roll shows, and during the week they would have movies, like I think probably older movies. And I always believed they were shot a week apart. The interesting thing about them, two things. One is they, they are similar. To me, they're a pair. It's those two, that moment, and they are performance shots but they are that quiet moment and they're both looking away. So to me, I mean, you've got to point it out before people get it, but it's right there. And most people go, oh, are they live shots, Mick? I mean, I suppose whatever it is, I learned something from that. Anyway, it was all happening day to day, very compressed. Now I think back when I think and look at this body of work stretching over a certain period, I was just fired up, I suppose, by the circumstances. And you followed up with classic shots of Queen and many others. This was an era when album covers were serious works of art and treated as such. So they were important cultural chronicles of their time, right? It's a very thoughtful question. I mean, I'm, I, I'll answer daft questions, but that's very thoughtful. Well, one thing is back in those days, there weren't that many places where you could see the imagery. True. If an act like the Beatles or Elvis Presley went through the roof, then they could still be everywhere. But everywhere, it's amazing when you think back, you go, well, the Beatles were everywhere when you were a kid. And you go, yeah, there was so much less media, but they really got out there. The thing with the album covers, for one thing, they were a lot bigger. Two, there weren't that many ways you could get the enemy. You know, there were actually a lot of music papers. You wouldn't get a lot in the national press. Tiny bit of TV, no documentaries, no internet, not thousands and thousands of magazines and blogs that are desperate that will publish anything. And I don't mind. I have no issue with that. But that was the most potent thing that people had to latch onto. Now, like the Hunky Dory album cover with David looking like a big girl. I mean, even though that wasn't a big seller in its time that was the beginning of the setup, you know. Of course, David was not contrary to what some people might have thought, given the wild outfits he wore. He was not into drag. I never saw David. Yeah, he did that dress thing many years ago for the man who sold the world. I mean, it was before I knew him. I mean, he was being provocative. David was good at being very, um, how shall I put it to you? Because it was a light thing. The beauty of David Bowie especially in that breakout period, was there was a lightness of touch. And in his relationships, too. I know he had a bit of a spat with Mark Boland for a while, but when I talked to Mark about photographing, everyone thought better that I shouldn't photograph him since I was doing all this stuff with David. I think there was a little period when something and, and Tony was locked into Mark at that very moment. So he... Whatever. Didn't last long. But it was happening when I first met David, I remember. At Oxford Town Hall on June 17, 1972, you took the now legendary photo of David filleting Rono's much-loved Gold and Gibson. What's the story behind that shot? 
Well, in many ways, even though I had already done a lot of pictures of David that are in museums now all over the world, um, you know, the ones in the pink room, the one in the mirror, the ones taken in Beckenham. But there was that moment, and I think Ziggy Stardust, and you might know better than me, had just maybe been released within two or three days. And David could feel his sap rising, because when I first saw him Birmingham Town Hall in March, there were about 400 people there. And seeing him shows, I have got shots from the stage in the audience video, you can see there aren't that many people there. But it was so organic with him. Now I look back, you've got to remember how young I was and what did I really know. I mean, Sid Barrett had been my mate and I'd done some pictures of Rory Gallagher on the pre-things, but I had a certain sensibility that gelled with David's. There I was, Oxford Town Hall, bing, bang, bong. And I was... David's mate and been hanging about and um, and having very intelligent conversations with him. I think that was part of it too. Anyway, I bounded up to the side of stage for the encore. And out he came and suddenly bing, bang, bong. And I wasn't even sure that I got it. I actually got two shots. Two shots that illustrate something very interesting about that shot. So you're going to get a bit of a full bag on that shot. Uh, you know, as what the passage of time does. The thing was, David came off stage. I didn't know he was going to do it, but he said, did you get it? Did you get it? So he knew, let's give David Bowie all the credit in the world. I mean, I was an instrument, and, and I'm sure I proved to be a very valuable instrument, but he was incredibly aware. I mean, I think that was what turned me on a lot with David, was this outside rock and roll awareness thing going on that because of my Cambridge education maybe it twisted my brain but he could relate to all that and that night I processed the film because he'd said could you meet me at my manager's office at noon tomorrow he knew he was on the game trying to hustle that into Melody Maker but Melody Maker had closed their books and they got ads the only way they could get it in was to buy could you imagine that the only way to get that shot at that moment in time into Melody Maker, who should have splashed it all over the front cover, which they didn't, was to buy a full page. But David knew it was his instigation. And the timing of that and the release of the album, it timed with the gay liberation thing. It came in time with the girlification of us butch boys. And it was a guitar rock and roll gesture like Pete smashing his guitar or Jimmy setting his on fire. And what he was really trying to do is he pointed out many years later, he wasn't trying to go down on his knees. And there is an earlier phrase, he just wanted a bite mixed guitar. That was the gimmick that he'd thrown in out of the blue. But because of the way Mick swung his guitar around, he had to go down. If you look at the shot, he's not on his knees. His feet are splayed apart. So that was... The biting was intentional. The fact that it turned into this thing, the fact that it turned into this shot that echoed around the business and, and it was somehow revolutionary and whatever it was. And it was just a flash, a little flash on the camera and got on a small stage in front of a thousand people. Whatever it was, his imagination, he knew he was onto something. I took the picture, yeah. It was not credited, but the word got out, especially in the gay community, that Mick Rock had taken this racy rock and roll picture. But David did it. But then he would repeat it. 
that became a leitmotif. Not every show, I have tons of variations on that, including the one where Mick's standing over him, straddling him, Big Butch and David's on the floor, hunched up, playing the girl role. David was very astute at knowing what would get good press. Visually, his plan was unfolding beautifully, but importantly, he was also very articulate, and he had the sales pitch to back it up. I think that's another reason that David also, because he gave incredible quotes. I mean, if you stack all his quotes together from the 70s, it's probably better than John Lennon's, other than the fact that David wouldn't get, you know, he stayed away from all that religious. But Leper Messiah, there was almost a moment of messianic grab, but whatever. I mean, it was an amazing thing to have happened to him. And, and you say, well, did he get carried away? You say, yeah, probably. It didn't stop him from producing great art. And Lou and Iggy were already very carried away. And then after a couple of years of incredible success and a whirlwind journey, it sort of came to an end at Hammersmith on July 3, 1973, and you were there. What are your memories of that night? I remember the night before, and he, what he told me. He said, that's it. I mean, I didn't question him hard about it. I listened to Dave a lot, and I accepted in an interested way. I said, oh, do you mean it? He said, oh, yeah. He said, that's it. I think he, in a way, emotionally, he was that drained that he possibly, and I can't speak authoritatively, because I, I couldn't, I mean, I felt I had an intuitive understanding of him, and I think he feels the same, but I, you can't, how far can you get into someone's brain? I, but he was a communicator. That I think, in a way, he felt that it sort of was the last gig. It's not that he was thinking, oh, bugger Ziggy, I'll go and do this next. I think it was, that's it. It's done. And then, of course, later on realised, how could it possibly be done? And it was just the end of Ziggy. But he was Ziggy at that moment. He had, for a while, become this spaceman. And, and it was a wonderful thing to behold. But that's a hell of a lot to live with, you know. I mean, getting out of bed in the morning and there you are, Captain Spacehead, you know. And <laughs> you remember, and you're a revolutionary too. I mean, you're, he's a cult. He was... A lot of people owe a lot to David Bowie. Just, I think that's why his cultural resonance, as many records as, as he's sold and as iconic as his records are, his cultural resonance. I think when Sid died, he went, oh, this is pure, playful conjecture. He went, yeah, I should have been like, you know, not available to anybody. <laughs> and then this myth just gets ridiculous, you know, because look at Sid, he did, <laughs> and he was over. And the myth of Sid Barrett. The thing about David, even though it, it might have been getting a little bit where, and you can see that's a hell of a trap, especially people thinking that's you 24 hours a day. Yeah, he got carried away. In fact, he didn't get any more carried away than I did. And I went, like I said, I'm just a photographer. Let me tell you something about him that's interesting, deeper than all, is at that moment in time, as Ziggy was breaking out, he took three acts. One was Mott the Hoople, who ironed records haven't been able to give away. One was Lou Reed, and the first album was a complete dud on RCA, and the Velvet Underground albums were forgotten about, except for by the few. And Iggy and the Stooges. And Iggy, you know, I mean, no one would touch him. And he waved his magic wand. Somebody wrote, produced, impresario, mixed, over those three things. And then there was Lindsay Kemp and little old me trolling along as well. The music had a certain... Well, look, look at the endurance of the music. There are some great photographs and fascinating articles, telexes and letters, all from the main man archive from the period that Mick was discussing. 
And it's all part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we're adding to the Main Man Label website each week. Really fascinating record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's mainmanlabel.com. And on the website, you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, we'll examine the birth of glam and the relationship between David Bowie and Mark Bolan 50 years after the release of Ride a White Swan. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.